wonder what your experience is of neighbours, and I mean the next door variety. Uh, when we were in uh, Biloela for a, a few months before moving back here to uh, Emerald, Nat and I uh, did what we've done um, the last couple of times we've moved to a new place, uh, well, or Nat did what she's done the last couple of times we've moved to a new place, done a little bit of baking um, and, uh, and tried to get around to our neighbours and, and give them a gift. Um, now, that might seem like a radical act of love uh, in, a, in a place where um, perhaps you can go years and years without meeting or learning the names of your neighbours um, and, and, and maybe not so radical at all. Uh, it felt pretty radical to me when I was trying to pluck the courage to go and knock on a door. It feels weird. Um, anyway, we went to our next door neighbours. Uh, there, there was a young family from Vietnam who lived next door to us. We rocked up with a, you know, a small container with about half a dozen pieces of slice uh, to give to them and their family. And uh, when they op- opened the door and saw us, they said, come in. We weren't expecting that. Uh, so we got invited in. Uh, they opened the fridge and bought out uh, cans of soft drink and bottled water from the tap would have been fine. Um, the man produced a fruit platter from the fridge and he sent us home uh, with a traditional Vietnamese slice that his wife had made and chewy coconut paper which they could only get from Vietnam when they visited Vietnam Um, and they weren't due to go back for some time but they wanted us to eat this stuff that to our palates wasn't as great to us as it was to them but gee they wanted us to have it. Their kindness was frankly embarrassing. Uh, It was amazing. It was so great. Um, but here were we thinking we were on the front foot and we were just thoroughly outdone uh, by the love and generosity of our neighbours. Jesus gets asked the question, uh, who is my neighbour? And the question he answers is actually about how to be a good neighbour. Not about who your neighbour is, but how to be one, uh, to be a good neighbour to others. Nothing fancy today. We're just going to walk through the passage in a pretty orderly fashion. We're going to talk about the test, the parable, and the lesson, the test, verses 25 to 29. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is interesting because Luke actually doesn't leave us guessing about the lawyer's motives, does he? He, you know, he puts it out there for us to see. This is no friendly fireside chat. He stands up to do theological battle with Jesus, to challenge him to a war of the wits, to put Jesus to the test. The tone for the discussion has been set and you have to wonder if the lawyer is up to the task or if maybe he's bitten off a bit more than he can chew. Jesus returns served by asking the lawman what he makes of the law. Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus asks, how do you read it? And the lawyer answers well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour as yourself. To which Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Now for the hard part, do it. Quick question. The man has asked what he needs to do to be uh, rewarded with eternal life. And Jesus agrees with his answer about what it is he needs to do. So question time. Is Jesus advocating that getting into heaven is a matter of doing? Is getting into heaven a a, a thing that we do enough uh, to achieve? You might find that a strange question, uh, you know, because on first reading it might seem quite obvious. If God has any sense of justice, then if you do good, you get to heaven, and if you do bad, you miss out on heaven. 
But the thing is, we just don't use that kind of doing language in our circles much anymore. We never say that getting into heaven is about how much you can do. Actually, we take enormous pains to stress that you cannot do enough to get into heaven uh, on your own steam. But that isn't because there's anything wrong with the formula that is agreed upon by the lawyer and Jesus. Loving God with your every fiber and loving others with the same strength is exactly what God requires and expects from us. That's exactly the right answer. The formula is sound. There's nothing wrong with it. The weakness in the formula is with us. We are in deep and drastic need of grace and forgiveness for the times that we fail every day to love God and love others the way that we should. And I actually think the gravity of this maybe starts to dawn on the lawyer. Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And he starts to think back over all this, the lawyer, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love God with every cell and synapse in your body. There's not much getting around any of that, is there? As a command, it it majors on completeness. You can't get around it. It's absolute. And suddenly the lawyer is not so happy with his answer anymore. It's not that his answer is inadequate. It's that if anything, it sounds a bit too much. And here Luke gives us another little insight into the mind of this lawman. In verse 29, Luke says his next step is to try and justify himself. He can't get away from loving good and let's, uh, loving God. And let's give the man a little bit of credit. He is a leader of religion. Um, he's just not going to argue with the fact that he should love God. Um, but in his special breed of piety, he finds it easy enough to want to weasel away from loving people. You know, that seems a lesser love. How can I get away with loving people less? People aren't as important as God anyway. And as far as people are concerned, he's actually one of the important ones. Uh, People should be happy to receive his love um, and he should be receiving plenty of love from others. So maybe there's a way around loving your neighbour as yourself. I reckon there's two ways around loving your neighbour as yourself. You can love yourself less. I don't think he's that interested in that one. Or you can define the word neighbour so narrowly that in the end you shrink it down to such a small and manageable selection of people who are the kinds of people who preferably make for good, com- good company anyway. And so he asks, perhaps a bit nervously in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, and who is my neighbour exactly? And Jesus tells this parable. Verses 30 to 35, the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Nothing radical here. It's a well-known path, uh, except that it had a reputation for danger. Uh, So the people hearing would not have been surprised to hear that the man fell into the hands of robbers. It was a winding, rocky path hedged by caves. Travellers were easy picking for bandits bandits who terrorised the track, uh, in fact, for centuries either side of the time of Christ. And so that's what happens. The man is outnumbered and overpowered by robbers who strip him, beat him, leave him for dead. He's unlucky, uh, even if what happens to him is not altogether unexpected. But now, as luck would have it, a Jewish priest chances by. Coming down the same stretch of road, but instead of helping, uh, he crosses to the other side and passes on by. Then in verse 32, a Levite, 
who is another temple worker, does the same. Jesus doesn't offer the motives for these men. You know, maybe they're frightened. Uh, maybe they're not wanting to harm their, uh, their uh, what is it, ritual cleanness uh, by touching a man who, who might, may possibly die. Uh, it could be any of those things. But Jesus does make it plain that both men saw the injured man. They knew what they were doing. Both men took deliberate action to walk around him and get away from him. And both men, of all men, should have had the moral awareness to help him out. These are leaders of religion. These are men of God. The man is dying. It's not hard. Help the guy out. But even just actually with these two, the priest and then the Levite, there is a sort of a trend emerging. So a priest was a man of importance in the temple. A Levite was something like a priest's assistant. So a little less important in the temple. If a hero is going to emerge in this story, it looks like it's not going to be a religious figure. Maybe just a simple, honest, decent man. And thankfully, salvation does come from such a man. But this man is still an unlikely kind of man. He's not just a decent, honest man. He's something that's unheard of. He's a decent, honest Samaritan. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeys, comes to where he is. And when he sees him, he has compassion. For Jesus, as I half said to the kids earlier, for Jesus in this context, to refer to the hero of the story as a Samaritan uh, is a majorly loaded term. Uh, It doesn't simply mean that he was a man who came from Samaria, although it does mean that he came from Samaria. But Samaria, um, for, for history's sake, Samaria had been the capital of the other half of the kingdom of Israel when they divided hundreds of years before. There was a long history of bitter bloodshed between the clans uh, and perhaps most significantly to a man like our lawyer who's been told the story, Samaritans were seen to have muddy bloodlines and harmful religious heresies. They were big time outcasts and the most unclean of all the unclean. They were the worst kind of unclean because they were the kinds of people who should have known better. But this is the man, a Samaritan, who in verse 33 when he sees the beaten man has compassion. And for him, compassion equals action. Verse 34, he went to him. Now he's already a step ahead of those who'd actively avoided the man. He tends his wounds with bandages, uh, oil to clean and soothe the wounds and wine to disinfect them. He puts him on his own donkey. I assume he's content uh, himself to walk from here on out. Um, he, He gives the sick, injured man his donkey. In the absence of hospitals in those days, he brings him to an inn and takes care of him there. And that is all just verse 34. That's a big verse, a verse of action. <clears throat> but our Samaritan seems like he's never content to say he's done enough because he continues into verse 34. The next day, he's back. He takes out two denarii, two coins. He gives them to the innkeeper. He gives them to pay up front at to cover all expenses incurred and all expenses still to come. And finally, he promises to make up the balance if there is any later. Now, that's compassion. And it's a contrast, isn't it, uh, to the lawyer who asked the original question, who was looking uh, to justify himself, uh, a man who was trying to shrink down his requirements and suss out the bare minimum of what's expected of him. In reply, Jesus gives an example of a man who just can never do enough to help. So we arrive at the end at the lesson, verses 36 and 37. I love this parable uh, because it is deliciously frustrating. 
It just doesn't exactly match the question that the lawyer asks in the first place. Have you noticed that? There's, there's something almost tangential. They, they almost meet up, but just not quite. So the man asks way back in verse 29, who is my neighbor? And Jesus starts a story with a man on a journey. And what you might expect is, uh, is for that man to happen upon a variety of people and to help them or not help them according to whether or not they are his neighbor, to try to identify what kind of person is the neighbor to the man uh, at the beginning. Therefore, who he should love uh, because they're neighbors or not. But instead, the man finds himself half naked and half dead. He's no use to anyone. He's not looking out for neighbors. He's not identifying anything. When he stumbles on a neighbor, it won't be to help them. It will be to be helped by them. The man needs a neighbor. So Jesus' question at the end isn't who was the man's neighbor, but verse 36, who was a neighbor to the man? It's, it's subtly different. Do you see the difference? It's Jesus' way of saying that the question isn't, who is my neighbor? Your and my question should not be, who is my neighbor so I know who to love and by extension, who to not love. But how can I be a neighbor? How can I be a good neighbor? And suddenly the question of who is a neighbor to you doesn't matter because you are just a neighborly kind of guy on everyone's side. See, if you follow what I'm saying here, um, this might be a bit of an obscure analogy. I remember playing table tennis uh, against my sister when I was younger. We could get ourselves into long rhythmic rallies sometimes. Um, And sometimes uh, I'd see that she was setting me up into a sort of a rhythm. So when she was hitting the ball consistently down this one side, I'd know that eventually she's going to hit the ball down the other side uh, to try to trick me. And so I'd find myself trying to guess and anticipate when is when's the switch coming? Or sometimes she'd deliberately hit this side and then that side and this side and then that side, lull me into a rhythm, and then I'd be waiting, trying to guess, when is when's she going to do the same thing twice? Do you understand? That, that sort of responsive, second-guessing, all the time trying to anticipate but never actually having any way of knowing for sure what she's going to do next. I found that the best way to play her was not to guess where she was going to hit the ball next. You just cannot know. All the guessing would drive me nuts. I realized that my job wasn't to guess what she was going to do next. It was to think about what I was going to do next, to play my own game, to play my own attacking brand of table tennis um, and not try to guess and respond all the time to what she's doing. Let me see if I can bring this together. When it comes to following God's command to love your neighbor, it's not your job to occupy yourself with guessing uh, who is your neighbor and trying to identify who that person may or may not be. That's not where your energy is best spent. Your job is to get busy being a neighbor, to play your own attacking brand of neighborliness, being proactive and attacking life as a neighbor. Did that make sense in the end? I think it almost did. To be a neighbor, to get so engrossed in this task of being a neighbor that you wind up surprising yourself by the very kinds of people uh, that you wind up extending love towards in the end. But just for fun, let's humor the question and ask, who is my neighbor? Let's think about some specific people who are definitely our neighbors. I've got a list of about 25. We'll see how we go. Fellow Christians are definitely your neighbors. You cannot get around this one. Your fellow Christians are your neighbors, even if you don't like them. Learn to love them.
and actually I don't want to make a, you know, a hair splitting distinction between like and love here. Um, learn to like them as well. Who else is your neighbour? People in this church. People who you actually rub shoulders with. I mean, I mean that's, that's our, our nearest connection to the word neighbour, isn't it? Someone actually beside you. Um, you can't get around this one either. Love the people you go to church with. Learn to forgive them if that's what it takes. Love your next door neighbours. Gee, this is profound. Do what you can to help and serve your neighbours. Learn their name, if nothing else. Love your colleagues. They're your neighbours, aren't they? You know, these are the people you're rubbing shoulders with. Um, Don't just love the ones you like. Don't just love the ones that you have things in common with. Uh, But learn to love and get along with your neighbours and to serve them and to do good for them where you can. I don't know of a better way of saying this. Homosexuals. Love people who feel, uh, who experience same-sex attraction. Here's a really practical one for this. I used to use the word gay as a jokey sort of insult. That's not fair on those people who are my neighbours uh, who may experience same-sex attraction. I'm not going to say I don't use that word anymore. I hope I don't. I can't think of the last time I did. Um, but let's, let's be sensitive to people. Whether we agree with their lifestyle choices or not, uh, let's not heap insult. Maybe you'll find this one even harder. Gay and lesbian rights lobbyists. People on the other side of politics sometimes. They're your neighbours. Love them. Even if you disagree with them, even if you find yourself uh, in sometimes heated uh, and serious and important disputes with them, do the neighbourly thing of listening, of being respectful, of engaging with their arguments at their strongest level instead of uh, engaging in personal attacks or, 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 or being harsh for the sake of it. Love people who are generally on the other side of politics from you. Love those who are pro-abortion. Love uh, those mothers who find themselves in a tight spot and who feel like uh, there's no uh, other way around uh, what they're doing. We disagree with them, uh, I hope. Um, But let's not wade into uh, discussions on sensitive things like abortion without sensitivity. Um, Let's demonstrate our love. Let's seek to demonstrate our love, even in matters of right and wrong, perhaps especially in matters of right and wrong. Refugees. Muslim refugees. Drug users. People on welfare when you're a taxpayer. Here's one. People who are easily offended. Love people who are easily offended. Take at least some responsibility for not being needlessly offensive towards them. I hear so much, so much about, you know, um, what is it? Snow, precious snowflakes and princesses and, you know, people are too easily offended these days. Yeah, maybe. But let's not add insult to injury. Love your mother-in-law. Love gluten intolerant people. Slow drivers, people who chew loudly, people who seem to be luckier than you are. You know, the people who are just good at everything and the last thing you feel like doing is paying them a compliment or helping them out, love them. Love people who work in retail. The number of times, uh, many of you know I I work uh, a small amount as an optometrist, the number of times the ladies who uh, work out at the front desk um, 
will warn me about a particular client who's been challenging out the front or who might be a bit anxious or a bit grumpy or even a bit mean. And they'll prepare me for dealing with someone who's challenging. And I find that to me, that person is just sweet as pie. I guess it's because I'm the optometrist uh, that people genuinely seem to treat me better than the ladies who do all the hard yards out the front. Love and be kind to people in retail, in menial jobs. Love your enemies, as Jesus famously said and did. Love people with sickness or disabilities that you may not understand or have patience for. Love people with other faiths and worldviews. Love people with different moral standards from you. Love them. Love people whose problems are frankly their own fault. Love them. Love people who never seem to learn. Love the people who embarrass you. Love people who are sarcastic. Love people who are bad at their jobs. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. Love them. That's an exhausting list. If that's an exhausting list, then instead of trying to figure out who it is we can get away with loving less, let's concentrate on just being people who love. Let's be a church um, that sees ourselves as the neighbour, the good neighbour, on the front foot, doing what we can to serve our community and those around us. We learn love from the best. I'm just going to close with a few uh, words uh, from, most of them are from Jesus. If you read anything in John, uh, John is the love guru in a way. You can't read anything from John without stumbling upon commands to love. This is really instructive, actually. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, this is instructive, I think. It's quite interesting because I remember hearing this and, and the first time it occurred to me that when Jesus says, love one another, he's saying, oh, love fellow believers. And my immediate thought was, you know, one of a bit of excitement that, oh, actually, Jesus has narrowed down who he's commanding you to love. When Jesus says, love one another, he's not saying love everyone. He's just saying, love fellow believers. But that's not the point, is it? Uh, you know, there I am shrinking down who he's saying to love. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, oh, someone who's just, you know, loving the people who are his friends anyway. But this is the start. You have to start uh, loving one another and loving your friends. We learn love from the man who laid down his life. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation to stand uh, in our place. For our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not just that we should, if God so loved us, not, not if God loved us so much that he lay, laid down his life, but that is how God loved us, that he laid down his life. Last one, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think Jesus gave us the perfect example uh, of what a neighbour ought to be. He's the one who teaches us to love. Let's be people of love. Uh, let's, be, let's be the good neighbour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you uh, for giving us these lessons in stories uh, that capture our imagination, uh, that draw us in uh, and that challenge us. Father, help us uh, to be people who don't um, seek to weasel out of obeying your commands. Father, we confess that we are people who seek to weasel out of obeying your commands. 
We're people who want to be content with the bare minimum, but we know. We know what's required. We know that uh, love is something that uh, we are to do with our whole heart, soul, mind, strength. Father, we confess uh, that we have failed uh, in your command for us to love. Father, we confess that we show favoritism and partiality to the kinds of people we would rather love. Father, we confess that we show greater love to the people who we think we can get more from. Father, please forgive us for demonstrating the kind of love to the world that has nothing to do with the kind of love uh, that you showed us. Father, give us brand new hearts. Make us uh, people who want to love, who have the strength to love, who have learnt to love from the very best. Make us people uh, who are happy to see uh, love as being something that equals sacrifice. It's not all nice and easy. Uh, It's hard and it costs us. Help us to love uh, from a position of strength, knowing that we were first loved by you uh, and learning from the best to love even those who are sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.